But the charitable view is that the top party leadership and Imran Khan said to themselves, look, it doesn't matter how we come to power. Once we're in power, we can make a change. The problem, of course, is once you use this route to come to power, your party and your government are hijacked by those same guys and by those same electables. And you end up with what we're seeing now. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. We had Dr. Adil Najam with us a few weeks ago and in that conversation, which was wide ranging, he raised a very interesting and important point, which was that if you sort of look at divisions in Pakistan, whether they're ethnic, religious or otherwise, um, underneath them all is the issue of class and caste. And one, I could argue that, you know, class and caste in the subcontinental, particularly Pakistani sense, are very deeply intertwined and tied together. And so I figured that, you know, we should have a conversation about this very important issue because in many ways that in and of itself not only holds back the political development and progress in Pakistan, but also economic progress. So with me to talk about this topic um, is Dr. Hassan Jawed. Dr. Jawed is an associate professor of sociology at LUMS um, and as someone who's done phenomenal research on the issue of democratization and the relationship between class, power and the state. So Dr. Jawed, thank you so much for taking out the time and welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you for having me. I want to start with this conversation that, you know, once again has come back on, particularly on social media, but even in mainstream media, given the democratic opposition and the PDM, the Pakistan Democratic Movement is protesting, which is that, you know, these are dynastic parties and uh, what hope can one have about democracy from these dynastic parties. But the thing that I often wonder is even parties that oppose dynasties, particularly the PTI in this instance, have fallen prey to getting the so-called electables in their camps to win elections. So let's start with your assessment and analysis of why is it the case that dynasties um, remain so important in Pakistan's system, particularly in a place like Punjab and Sindh, which really dominate uh, the political economy of the country? Well, um, I think that's a very important question. And uh, generally, whenever this question comes up, as you said, it's come up again these days when people refer to the PDM. Generally, when it comes up in the discourse, in the mainstream discourse, the, the criticism that's made of dynastic politics and dynastic parties is that they're headed by dynasts, right? So you have Maryam Nawaz, for instance, you have Nawaz Sharif and his brother Shabazz Sharif, you have Shabazz Sharif's children, and then, you know, in, in the People's Party, you have Bilawal Bhutto, who is, this, who is the son of Benazir Bhutto, who was the daughter of Zulfikar Bhutto. So the idea is that being headed by these particular families is, is problematic, right? And to be fair, it can be problematic in some ways. I mean, lots of questions can, for instance, be raised about the internal democ uh, democracy of these parties, the extent to which the leadership is responsible to its members and the extent to which decision-making and the development of any kind of programmatic politics is responsive to, in a sense, the demands of the membership and the demands of the electorate, as opposed to the, the whims and desires of the top leadership. But I think the discussion on dynastic politics actually needs to go beyond that because the problem isn't restricted to a few families heading a couple of parties. After all, I mean, you, you can find instances, for instance, in other parts of the world where you've had families, uh, you know, playing a prominent role in political parties, right? I mean, and again, that, that isn't necessarily a good thing, 
But it's also not necessarily a bad thing in the sense that ultimately the success of a leader in a democracy is going to depend on the extent to which they're able to gain support for themselves, gain support for their parties and, and respond to the electorate. So there's a question about internal democracy that's worth asking when we look at parties headed by dynasts. But in order to broaden the debate, I think it's important to recognize that the issue of dynasticism in politics extends beyond the leadership and actually applies to rank and file kind of candidates as well in pretty much every mainstream party. And just to uh, kind of give an indication of, of what I mean by that, a couple of years ago, Ali Chima, Farooq Nasir and I did some research on this. And um, uh, what, what we basically did was we put together a, a database of all uh, electoral candidates in Punjab from 1970 to 2008. And then what we did was we tried to establish the links between different candidates in terms of their familiar relations. So what we did was we defined a dynastic candidate as someone who had a close family member who had also contested an election in the past. This could be a father, a brother, a first cousin, and so on and so forth. And what we generally found was that since 1970, politics in Punjab has basically been dominated by about 400 families, right? Two on average, about two thirds of all legislators in Punjab were from these dynastic families in this time period until about 2008. And half of the top three candidates in every single race, every single electoral race were also from dynastic families, right? now. This is interesting also because if you look at other parts of the world, in the United States, for instance, about 6% of candidates would qualify as dynastic through by this measure. In India, it's about 28% in the same time period. Pakistan has higher levels of dynasticism than other countries. And it, it, it gets better in the sense that um, uh, if you have an election between a dynastic candidate and a non-dynastic candidate, the dynastic candidate is likely to win two out of three times. Right? That's been the case uh, over the past uh, 40 or 50 years. And um, such races account for 50% of all electoral races in Punjab, right? Um, a third of races are between dynastic candidates. You don't even really have non-dynastic candidates figuring in any prominent way. So why does all of this matter? The reason I think this matters is because there's a strong overlap between this idea of the electable politician and being a dynastic politician. Although they're not always the same, but there's a very, very kind of considerable overlap between the two categories. And what we've generally found, whether you're talking about the Muslim League, whether you're talking about the People's Party, whether you're talking about the PTI, and the various factions that kind of have grown out of these parties over time as well, like the PMOQ, for instance, what you generally find is that they are incredibly reliant on these dynastic electable candidates to win elections. And to put it very simply, that reliance gives this political elite a tremendous amount of power and control. It allows them to influence the platforms of their parties. And more importantly, once in power, it allows them to continue to um, uh, generate uh, and reinforce their networks of influence that enable them to acquire state patronage, disperse patronage, and influence policy in a way that is favorable to their interests. So 
it's 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 something that transcends, as I said, party lines. Every party has dynastic candidates in it. Every party that aspires to national office requires these dynastic candidates to win. And in doing so, they basically become vehicles for the uh, articulation of a relatively narrow set of elite interests. In my work, for instance, I've talked about uh, questions related to land reform and agricultural taxation. And what we generally find is, for instance, that these legislators use their position within the assemblies to block legislation, to alter legislation, to influence it in ways that protects their interests, even when it ostensibly starts out as a relatively progressive measure to bring about reform. More recently, as we've seen with this entire sugar industry report that's come out as well, I and mean, one of the most interesting things about the, I think it's the Sugar King Growers Association or whatever the name is. Of it's, the, it's one of the few sectors that, uh, you know, unifies rather than divides political exactly, parties I mean, in Pakistan. Uh, it unifies the parties because the most interesting thing about that organization is it has representation from all the parties, right? It doesn't matter who's in power. It's got representation from all the parties and they collude in a way that enables them again to protect their own interests at the expense of other interests. And that's just, again, an example of what happens when you place so much power in the hands of this relatively small elite. As I said, in Punjab, it's about, it's has been about 400 families and, um, that's broadly true for Sindh as well. The numbers in KP uh, are a bit different for various reasons, but dynasticism and Balochistan also has a relatively high amount of dynasticism. But again, it's a, it's a kind of systemic issue that characterizes Pakistan's politics. So, now, a quick, uh, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but a quick follow-up question because it's you know obviously when you have two of the largest provinces or three in this case, Balochistan yeah. as well, that are dominated by dynastic politics, obviously it creates a sort of um, uh, incentives to collude, incentives to protect the status quo, incentives to further the interests of the elite. The question I had for you and was just curious was that, does that then dynastic politics extend or the role of the dynasty extend beyond the politics into the bureaucracy or the security establishment or other spheres or organs of the state's influence. And I was just curious about your thoughts or your research on that topic, because I'm just thinking, because that then would, would say one could argue that reinforces further this control that the elite have over the status quo. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, this is an area which has occasionally seen some research. It's one of those things that everyone knows, but in a sense, you don't really see that much in writing. Um, I remember Craig Baxter, for instance, wrote something on this in the 70s. A few people have written about it more recently as well. But one of the most interesting things about this dynastic elite is the way in which marriage, for instance, is used as a tremendous mechanism through which they broaden their networks. Right. So you, you will find instances of, dyna of dynastic politicians marrying into each other's families. You'll find them marrying into the bureaucracy. You find them marrying into the military. You find them marrying into other branches of industry. So the commanding heights of Pakistan's political economy, in a sense, are underpinned by these social relationships premised on marriage and familial ties, as well as kinship. Um, similarly, you'll find, I mean, the stereotypical example from Punjab, in, uh, for instance, of the of the powerful political family with three sons. One goes into politics, one goes into the military, one goes into the bureaucracy. And that's a pattern you see being replicated across time, 
in Pakistan and still being replicated today. In fact, I mean, when you think about electable politicians, I mean, something I often think about is, you know, a lot of people assume it's just about money, right? A lot of people assume if you have money, you can get into politics, you can be incredibly influential. And to some extent, that's true. But what really produces an electable politician is the ability to make use of networks that extend into the state, into the bureaucracy and into other spheres of Pakistan's political economy. That's what makes them so useful. I mean, uh, that's what makes them useful to parties in the sense, this ability to create networks. And in a way, that's also what makes use, uh, what makes sense to, to voters. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, given a choice, I mean, and there's experiments on this that people have run in South America. I mean, there's been some unpublished work on this in Pakistan as well. But, you know, if you present voters with a choice between a corrupt politician who can get things done, right, meaning, you know, in, in our patron client, in our clientelistic political system, if you want to get a, a gas connection or you want to get a road repaired or something, if you give voters a choice between a corrupt politician who has networks and a relatively clean politician who's new, who doesn't have that background, doesn't have those connections, voters are probably more likely to choose, especially poorer voters are more likely to choose the one who at least can get something done. So, so and, quickly, there, there's truth to that saying then that in terms of voter choices. It's, it's also, and see, the thing is, what, what a lot of people often take from this kind of uh, conclusion is that, oh, poor voters, especially are somehow ignorant or they're voting against their own interests. But I think there's a different way of thinking about it, which is just to recognize that our institutions, in a sense, are relatively weak. They're, they're not geared towards universalistic provision, nor is our politics. Uh, it, there's a very transactional, in a sense, relationship, and a transactional in an everyday sense relationship between the state and its citizens. There's no guarantee of provision. Everything is a negotiation, whether it's your typical Tanakajeri politics where you're interacting with the police, whether it's a routine interaction with the bureaucracy. In the absence of that kind of universalistic commitment to public service provision, voters have no choice but to engage in these kind of clientelistic transactions with, with politicians. And they know that, right? They know that if they need to get something done, they need to know someone in the government. They need to know that their m &A will be able to help them out. And so given a choice, as I said, between a politician who can get something done potentially and a politician who can't, voters will probably choose the former, even if that involves a trade-off in a sense in terms of accepting a certain amount of corruption, right? The solution of course would be to have institutions that were more committed to universalistic delivery, but that in turn, it becomes a kind of chicken and egg problem because that in turn depends on the further development of your democracy. And what I would argue is that the, the more you empower electables and the more you put them in those positions of power, the less likely it is you're going to see a move towards that kind of universalistic provision, precisely because the power of these electables is premised on the perpetuation of a system that uh, reinforces uh, clientelistic politics. Well, that's super fascinating because I had um, Dr. Mushtaba Isani on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he's done some really brilliant research in interior Sindh. And my question to him was, well, why is it that, or what are the biggest issues in interior Sindh? And he raised a very similar point to the one that you're making. He's like, 
the voter there is going to make a very calculated choice in terms of understanding who is a powerful candidate, uh, powerful and not in the sense of their honor or moral character or ethics, but mm. powerful in the sense of who can get things done. Yes. And he was like, the biggest issue for the for the voter then is property rights and the fact that you know you will get into disputes and they will look towards the dominant political player to resolve those issues because the state in and of itself cannot protect those rights, particularly when it comes to property. And I hear you saying a very similar thing. So my question then is like, you know, if this is a chicken and egg problem and we often hear that Pakistani society is divided, um, how does this system perpetuate itself in a divided society um, that has these caste-based issues? And I want you to talk a bit about the role of caste in all of this, because I think it's super fascinating because many Pakistanis don't often talk about the role of caste in all of this. And so maybe start with, by explaining the role of caste in the political system of Pakistan and how that perpetuates this dynastic politics that we see across, particularly in Punjab and Sindh. All right. So um, the first thing I think that's important to clarify is what exactly do we mean by caste in, in the Punjabi context and in the Pakistani context more generally? Well, um, the reason why people often don't think about caste or think about Pakistani politics and society in caste terms is because there's this assumption that caste is somehow something that's alien to Pakistan. It's somehow alien to Pakistan because it is a purely, in a sense, Hindu uh, uh, institution, right? It's something you associate with Hinduism. And certainly, for instance, I mean, especially if you go through our Pakistan studies textbooks, that's how it's portrayed. The reality, of course, is that that's not the case. In fact, I mean, uh, as Hadis Ghazdar put it in a paper he wrote once, I mean, the, the interesting thing about caste in Pakistan is that there's a public denial of it and a private obsession with it. Because when it comes to marriage, for instance, again, a great example, uh, to this day, marriages in Punjab and Sindh, to a very large extent, are determined by what people colloquially refer to as caste, right? So what we have in Pakistan is a caste system that if it, it does differ from the traditional classical Hindu caste system in some respects, one is, some may argue, it lacks the force of religious sanction. There's no kind of scriptural basis for it or traditional kind of Islamic basis for it. Some may argue that. The other point is it's endogamous. You have marriages within kinship networks as part of the Pakistan, uh, caste system that you find in Punjab. But having said that, I mean, it does exist. And I've in my own work, I've defined it as occupationally stratified endogamous kin groups. That's one way of thinking about caste in Pakistan, that there's, there is an occupational stratification, right? So you, you have a divide, a clear social hierarchy between those who own land, those who cultivate land, those who provide artisanal services, and those who provide unskilled labor and are landless in the, in a sense, a traditional rural economy. And these caste boundaries are maintained partly through, in a sense, uh, economic uh, economic mechanisms, but because you, you, you in, in, in a sense, get trapped within those same kinds of economic roles over time, especially in the absence of avenues for uh, mobility. And they're also reinforced by endogamy, by marriages within your kinship network. So 
that's in a sense what caste is in Pakistan, in one sense. There's another sense, and I think we can talk about that in a minute as well, which is the way in which it does still very much exist in the kind of traditional ritual pollution, purity pollution kind of way as well. And that I think does apply, especially to people who converted from lower castes to Islam and Christianity, uh, particularly around the time of partition. But, that, but that's something we can come to in a minute. When it comes to politics, the role caste plays, or the role Biradri plays in Pakistan is, is, is relatively straightforward. It's a mechanism through which you mobilize votes, right? You mobilize votes and vote blocks around kinship networks, right? Um, this is something that goes back to the colonial period. I mean, this is something I look at um, in some detail in my own work, but uh, under colonial rule, the, the political system that was designed in Punjab, for instance, was explicitly designed to facilitate the mobilization of votes along caste uh, networks. The idea was very simple. The British envisaged Punjab as being essentially a collection of villages or a collection of or clusters of villages at the, with a very well-defined social hierarchy. At the top, you'd have the landlords who control the levers of the economy. And then beneath them, you'd have dependent castes of cultivators, artisans, and others who would be linked to those landlords through patronage and uh, who the landlords could control through traditional institutions like Punjabians. And uh, legal measures were put in place, laws were put in place that ensured that voting would, in a sense, revolve around those particular networks. And that, in a sense, underpins the patron-client relations we continue to see in, in Pakistan today. So how does it work? It simply works like this. Whenever there's an election, whenever there's a need for political mobilization, you approach local caste leaders, right, uh, you, you, to form vote blocks. And, and what you try to do is put together coalitions of caste networks to create larger vote blocks that then vote for, uh, that align themselves with particular local influentials, usually belonging to higher castes. And then the idea also is that these networks come together because they're also a convenient means in a way through which to disperse patronage. Right, so you've got the local leader, you've got the caste, uh, the alliance of caste-based vote blocks voting for them. And the idea is that in exchange for their votes, they'll get some kind of patronage from the influential once they get elected to office. So in, in rural Punjab in particular, this is still, uh, the, the, in a sense, the dominant mechanism, the primary mechanism through which you mobilize votes. It's a different story in the cities where caste networks are exist but are weaker, particularly in the political sense. But certainly in rural Punjab, it very much functions in this way. The only difference that's taken place over the years in a way, as, as some might argue, is that um, whereas previously there was more of a direct relationship of economic dependence that allowed landlords and, and powerful influentials to exert direct control over the votes of subordinate kind of caste groups, now there's more of an expectation of patronage, right? So candidates do have to compete with each other to provide patronage to their networks. And that I think is a result of the way in which economy and society in a sense have, have moved on over the past 60 years. You do have more economic opportunity. The power of landlords has decreased to some extent with land fragmentation and the spread of capitalist economic relations. But 
to date, uh, you, you still find this happening. I mean, I remember the last time I was in the field a few years ago, this was before the 2018 elections, you go to villages around Punjab, and this is a story you keep on hearing. Local candidates are meeting with local caste leaders and asking, okay, will your block support me for this election? What will I get if, what will you give us if we support you for this election? So caste is a mechanism through which you mobilize votes and through which you then disperse patronage once elections have been won. I mean, that's how I think caste operates in the political sense uh, in Pakistan. So a follow-up on that, and I have several follow-ups because this is such an interesting topic, but the immediate question I had was, you know, I read your paper on the comparison between Punjab with Pakistan and Punjab in India, where in India you have a very strong Dalit movement and, yes. you know, a very strong lower caste involvement in politics with their own political parties across the board, whether you're looking at Punjab or other states like UP, Bihar and, and Kerala and, and even in the South. Um, but, you know, why don't we see this that kind of politics in Pakistan? Because one would argue, me being completely ignorant about this topic, that they are more in number and they have an interest that, you know, has not been taken care of over the decades. Um, and one would argue that the flow of patronage, while decent in the short term has not led to any long-term benefits to their communities. So why is it the case that while we do see a very, um, you know, diverse, a very uh, involved uh, political movement of the lower caste in, a, in India across the border, we don't see a similar thing in Pakistan? Well, um, the, the answer to that question is, again, it revolves around the kind of meaning of the term Dalit and how it differs across the border and, and in Pakistan. Across the border, uh, since the, even before independence, you had a movement for Dalit assertion and you had uh, people like Dr. Mbedkar, for instance, kind of at the, at the forefront of that. And, uh, it, and the category of Dalit, the category of scheduled class and other backward classes, all these different categories were recognized and codified relatively early on within Indian institutions. And as a result of which, one of the arguments people make is that the institutionalization of those identities in the law and the provision of things like quotas, for instance, in different provinces, created a, a basis upon which Dalit political mobilization could take place and would continue of, uh, over, the long, uh, over the long term. Now, as uh, my co-author Nicholas Martin and I argue in the paper you're referring to, that has had some good effects on Dalit assertion, but in a sense, it's also led to a situation where there is um, uh, a fragmentation of the Dalit vote as well, as it's been split along party lines, as it's been split along kind of ethnic lines in a way, and as it's been subsumed within larger parties. And what we argue there is that in a sense, there have been limits to D Dalit assertiveness within the framework of Indian politics that could perhaps be uh, overcome through a more kind of class-based or a unified Dalit front on that side of the border. In Pakistan, the situation is a bit different. And in Pakistan, the situation is different because the category of Dalit as understood in India only applies to Hindus in Pakistan. And we do have Dalit Hindus in Pakistan, particularly in interior Sindh. Uh, I, I spent some time working in interior Sindh as well uh, uh, some years ago. And I mean, uh, it's, it's quite clear that Hindus in Sindh, particularly in Tir Sindh, are amongst the most socioeconomically marginalized groups within Pakistan. But for them, the problem is 
in a sense, a combination of very small numbers in the grand scheme of things, and uh, often state-sanctioned discrimination, as well as a tremendous amount of kind of social discrimination and marginalization. That's one category. But what I've argued in this paper that you're referring to is that there is, in a sense, another subgroup that needs to be considered, which is people who converted to Islam from what you would have called the Dalit castes, or what were Dalit castes prior to conversion. And the point that I make is that even though formally they've converted to Islam, and in some cases to Christianity, in de facto terms, the discrimination they experience is not particularly different from the discrimination they, would have, they were experiencing beforehand as well. One indication of this, for instance, is, is the type of professions you find these uh, former Dalits in, or these Dalit converts in. Overwhelmingly, for instance, if you look at categories like uh, uh, sanitation work, sex work, begging, so on and so forth, the, the, the lowest rungs of the socioeconomic ladder disproportionately tend to be comprised of people who were for, who were who converted from the lower castes to Islam and to Christianity. And so one question that I've often wondered is, well, why has nobody mobilized these guys along those lines, along that particular caste identity? Because uh, there's never really been a proper survey of the numbers involved here, but some estimates put it at about 15%. About 15% of the population of Punjab, for instance, would, would be categorized as, as people who were formerly Hindu, who were lower caste Hindus. And so it's a pretty significant number of people. And you would imagine that you know an enterprising politician or an enterprising party might get up and say, look, you guys are discriminated against because of your de facto, in a sense, caste status, right? Even though you're formally Muslim, right? The discrimination you suffer is similar to the discrimination you suffered as Hindus, right? And I mean, there's, there's evidence for this as well. So why don't we mobilize a kind of uh, uh, a Muslim Dalit front? of some kind. And you have similar political formations in India, by the way. I mean, you, you have seen the emergence of, of movements like the Paspanda Muslim Mahaz, for instance, which is basically that former Dalits converted to Islam who still suffer from discrimination. Why not do that? The answer I have, I mean, it's perhaps an incomplete answer because there might be more to it, but the answer I have is that from the very outset in Pakistan, there's been, a, in a sense, a, as I said, this official silence about caste a refusal to engage with the idea that caste is a marker of identity and something that might structure social relations in Pakistan. Caste not as a kind of extension of the rural economy and biradri, but caste as something that exists as a marker of identity in and of itself with its own kinds of effects on how society is organized and how discrimination is experienced. Um, in my paper that I've referred to, what, what we generally find is that from, from the very beginning, whenever this question came up of the status of Dalits in Pakistan, um, in the constituent assembly debates and subsequently as well, it was always explicitly a Hindu category. In the official mind, there was no possibility that Muslims could experience something, anything similar to caste-related oppression. And the reason for that, I would argue, is because of this emphasis, this need to create this kind of unified Muslim identity that was distinct from Hinduism 
and that in a sense underpinned the idea of uh, official national identity uh, and citizenship in Pakistan, right? Because the idea again is you're not, you're not uh, Pakistan as a state for Muslims is not divided along ethnic lines. It's not divided along caste lines because we're all Muslims. We're all the same. That's the entire basis of the two nation theory. So in the official mind from the beginning, there's this refusal to acknowledge that there might be more complexity to identity in Pakistan. And that extends to caste as well. Uh, so there's this refusal to engage with the possibility that caste is a thing. It's complicated by the, in a sense, official uh, juxtaposition of caste with something that is explicitly Hindu and Indian and therefore anathema and alien to Pakistan. And over time, this tendency is just reinforced in the official discourse. So there have been legal cases, for instance, where uh, Muslims have attempted to gain uh, scheduled caste status for themselves based on some of the arguments I've been making. And in every single instance, the courts have said, absolutely not. There's no way that could work because it's an explicitly Hindu category. I mean, there's no way a Muslim could experience caste discrimination because caste is not something that exists in Islam. So as I said, there's this kind of official disavowal of the possibility that exists because it undercuts or undermines rather the, the broader narrative about Islam and identity in Pakistan. So in a way, I mean, look, the way you've described this is you have dynastic politics across political parties and their patronage flows are associated with that. And you have this idea of caste being a very real thing in Pakistani society, but not being recognized through both legal channels as well as political and societal yeah. channels, primarily because we are a Muslim country and in Islam, there is no such thing as caste. So therefore the whole topic is moot and you cannot have a conversation around it. So how does this then change? I mean, from, you know, in terms of pushing through political representation, and I'll get to economic inclusion in just a bit, but even just a narrow focus on politics, um, how do you then develop a political system that is representative of all the various facets of people, both across caste lines, ethnic lines, et cetera, when in fact the reality is that the political party system um, across the board is, is dominated by and captured by this very, very narrow set of dynasties that rule at the top. How does this change? With, with great difficulty is the answer. And this is, I think, the, uh, a point that many people fail to understand or, or fail to, in a sense, accept because it, it's an incredibly depressing point in a way to accept. Uh, again, another example. I mean, earlier on, you mentioned, you know, why is it that parties that might ostensibly be anti-dynastic nonetheless end up becoming dynastic parties? Uh, again, we have a great example in the PTI. Uh, back in 2013, you know, you had these jalsas, these massive jalsas after 2011, and you had this kind of idea that, wow, the PTI is this great anti-systemic party. Uh, for various reasons, I personally, for instance, never thought it was a particularly anti-systemic party. But even if we take the claim on its own merits, and or rather accept it at face value, what happened? In 2013, the PTI, for instance, had a policy policy that said we're going to only put fresh faces up for election in the uh, provincial assembly elections. We're only going to have candidates under the age of 35, I believe was what they were saying. And to some extent, they implemented that policy, right? Um, the PTI at that point in time did have electables in the party, but they were a relatively small number. 
what happens, the PTS completely massacred in the general elections. I mean, it, uh, it underperforms considerably. And um, that's not too difficult to understand when you, under, when you look at the logic of dynastic politics. Uh, in my work, I've referred to this as an electoral race to the bottom. As a political party in Pakistan that's competing in elections, you have a choice. Either you can build the organizational networks and the party apparatus required to sustain a popular movement that will mobilize votes for you, or you can try to co-opt electable politicians and in a sense outsource vote gathering and vote uh, and uh, mobilization to them. The, for the first option is the one that is more geared towards an inclusive programmatic politics. The second one is geared towards just winning an election. And I think what most parties end up doing is they end up choosing the second option because it's easier in many ways. There's another caveat, of course, if you don't go with the electable politician, if you don't select the dynastic politician, your rivals will, which makes your task even harder. So you can, you can stand by principle and say, we're only going to field fresh faces. Your rivals go with all the traditional electable politicians. All the factors we've talked about before come into play and lo and behold, you've lost the election. So you stood by your principles, you lost the election. And so in what, what do you see happening in 2018? Another colleague of mine, Maria Mufti, she and I wrote a paper on this. It's, it's going to be published soon, but basically what we, we did the numbers and we found that 60% of the PTI's MNAs in uh, 2018 were electables. You know, we, we use a definition of electable that's kind of similar to the definition of dynastic politicians. In Punjab, 83% of them were electables, right? And uh, this is the winning candidates. This isn't all their candidates. 83% of the winning uh, candidates in, uh, from Punjab in the National Assembly that belonged to the PTI were electable politicians. 63% of them had just defected recently to the PTI in the past couple of years. Uh, many of them were independents and the remainder were basically former People's Party politicians. So in, if, in the case of a party like the PTI, it's pretty clear, you can see what happens. I suspect the thinking, the official thinking was, it doesn't matter how we win. Once we win, we're in a position to bring about some kind of change. That's a charitable view. And, and so, so, sorry to interrupt there, yeah. but you know, uh, the, the charitable view, as you were describing that, I was basically thinking about the discourse of the PTI in 2013, which was yeah. the election was stolen from us, stolen, yeah. quote unquote. Um, and I would, after listening to you, would say that, yes, it was stolen, but not by some conspiracy, but by the fact that the dynasts were on the other side. And in 2018, the decision was made that rather yeah. than run through this process again, let's bring them over on our side for through whatever means possible, um, because that's the only way to achieve victory. Absolutely. I mean, and that's exactly what happened. The charitable view is that the top party leadership and Imran Khan said to themselves, look, it doesn't matter how we come to power. Once we're in power, we can make a change. The problem, of course, is once you use this route to come to power, your party and your government are hijacked by those same dynasties and by those same electables, and you end up with what we're seeing now. That's the charitable view. The less charitable view is something that I think uh, that, again, it comes up in my work repeatedly, which is that the, the persistence and strength of these dynastic politicians owes a lot to military interference in the political system. 
and I think this is a crucial point. Left to the, let me put it this way, left to their own devices, at the very least, you would expect repeated cycles of democratic competition to force diners to compete with each other to deliver better services and better policies and better programs to voters. At the end of the day, as I said right at the start, no matter how much of a dynast you are, if you have to win an election, you have to do something to win that election, especially when you've got other dynasts against you. The pressures of democratic competition might induce programmatic politics. They might induce a shift towards programmatic politics as elites are forced to compete with each other to come to power. The effect of military intervention in Pakistan has been to, in a sense, subvert those, the development of those processes of democratic competition. So the first thing that militaries do, and the military has done in Pakistan, is it undermines the further development of our political parties, right? All of them, when they've come to power, whether it's Ayub, whether it's Zia, whether it's Musharraf, the first thing they do is they ban political parties, put their leaders in jail, exile some others. The second thing they do, and this is crucial, is they then look for civilian politicians willing to work with them and they empower them. And those guys, again, tend to be the same electables and dynasts who then provide a, a stable base of support for our military governments as well. The end result is these dynasts continue to entrench themselves within our political framework. Military intervention facilitates this. Uh, military intervention facilitates this entrenchment. It doesn't disrupt it, because military, the, our military governments, end up relying on these dynasts as well. And the processes of democratic competition that might have uh, induced these dynasts to, over time, become more accountable and democratic are also stopped. And that's what I would say about the 2018 election as well. I mean, I just mentioned how a large number of electables defected to the PTI. There's a question that comes, that emerges out of that, which is why defect? Why defect to this PTI? And I mean, you start to enter conspiratorial territory when you say these things. But I think, again, if you look at, for instance, the, the reports that were circulating prior to the 2018 election about the pressure on different politicians, the legal cases against Nawaz Sharif and others and so on and so forth, one argument I would make is that in a sense, uh, when, when we talk about rigging in Pakistan, there's an assumption that you know there's a guy stuffing votes into a ballot box and you know that's how rigging happens. Sure, that can happen, but that's not how rigging happens. You rig the elections before they happen, in a sense. You rig them by inducing these defections. You rig them by creating a broader media narrative, by creating a broader kind of political environment in, in which it seems that some parties are favored and others are not. And I think there was a clear signal to many uh, electables prior to 2018 that in a way, for various reasons, the incumbents are a sinking ship it might be a good idea to hitch your wagon, so to speak, with the PTI. So yes, the PTI is reliant on defecting politicians, it's reliant on electables, but it's also worth remembering that the defection of electables itself is engineered in a way. And I think there's a lot of, in a sense, anecdotal evidence, at least, and testimony from various politicians to endorse that view. And I mean, I would present the economic argument for those defections, which is that if the hypothesis or the claim that the PMLN was extremely corrupt as a party and, you know, let's take that at face value and, you know, as you described, dynastic politics relies on a flow of patronage, then 
you as the dynast are in fact incentivized to align yourself with the corrupt politician at the top or the yeah. party that is corrupt at the top because that will facilitate the flow of patronage funds down the road which will keep your caste or your voter blocks satisfied um, and therefore there is from an economic rational perspective no reason for you to defect because guess what the times are good um, yeah. and so that you know argument also uh, from an economic lens also reiterates the fact that something happened elsewhere you know, I mean, it's what they say about rats and sinking ships, right? The minute they see a better opportunity, they defect because obviously the, the way our system works is uh, candidates remain loyal. Candidates of this nature don't remain loyal to parties out of ideology. They don't remain to part loyal to parties out of some kind of uh, partisan commitment to those parties. They're interested in patronage and position. And that's how defections again are engineered. If they see one ship is sinking, they'll try to defect to another one. Uh, there's a lot of volatility amongst uh, party candidates in that sense. Again, there is some data on this. Uh, again, my co-author, Maria Mufti, she's written a separate paper on, on this kind of volatility. And there's a tremendous amount of party switching that takes place. And one potential explanation for that is exactly this, that in a sense, electables are always on the lookout for a better deal. There are some who don't defect, and that's another issue altogether. But by and large, your average uh, electable politician is, is constantly shopping for a better deal. So just to kind of come back to the question you asked earlier about how, how you, all of this changes, what I've just described is the way in which electoral politics works. And I've tried to explain this logic that induces even, in a sense, anti-systemic parties to become parties of the status quo. There are some exceptions, and there are a couple of factors, I think, that kind of indicate an alternative form of politics. One is urban parties, purely urban parties, don't really function this way. Um, that's because electables and dynastic politicians are less powerful in urban contexts. Again, the research bears this out. Dynastic politics, uh, politicians in a city of Lahore exist, but they're not as likely to win or compete as dynastic politicians from the countryside. And there's various reasons for this. Personally, I think it has a lot to just do with how cities as sites of politics are much more diverse and open spaces than a lot of the countryside. There, there's a lot more economic opportunity. There are a lot of alternative channels of information. There's a lot of alternative kind of networks you can develop. And I think that plays a role in reducing the power of dynastic politicians within cities and electables within cities. Similarly, I mean, parties like the Jamaat Islami, for instance, parties like the MQM have, uh, are not dynastic parties. Those are very much, in a sense, ideological or programmatic parties. In the sense that if you have, you, an MQM candidate back in the day, for instance, would be voted into power because of the MQM label, not because of their individual identity as some kind of elective. And because of the work they did at, at the sector and level and the grassroots the and coming up from that. The same is true for the Jamaat Islami. Their candidates aren't electables. Their candidates are party workers who rose through the ranks and became candidates. The problem with these examples is they're the MQM and the Jamaat Islami. They're not exactly the best examples of, of democratic politics. But having said that, though, um, there is something to suggest that as urbanization continues, you're likely to see more competitive pressures emerge in electoral politics. Of course, that, there's a big caveat there again, which is as long as the military continues to interfere and engineer 
democratic outcomes, all bets are off about where this goes in the future. Which just brings me to the final thing I'd, I'd like to say about this was in a way, I think the solution to the question you've asked about where change comes from lies outside the realm of democratic politics. I think what's required is a more inclusive politics from below, a politics of the poor mobilized through social movements that, uh, that is geared explicitly towards uh, a radical transformation of the status quo. Remember, think back to what I said earlier, parties have a choice between actually mobilizing people and putting in the work to do that and taking the easy way out and just going with electables. And I think whether it's through some kind of political party, whether it's through grassroots organizing across Pakistan, through a patchwork or coalition of, of progressive or radical parties, that ultimately is what I think is most likely to bring about change and inclusive politics from below that is explicitly oriented towards mobilizing people with the intention to radically change the status quo. Again, easier said than done. I mean, the other thing, I mean, you, you mentioned this earlier as well, is we don't really have a class-based narrative for politics in Pakistan either. And one of the reasons for that is constant repression since the 1950s of anything even remotely resembling a progressive class-based politics in Pakistan. Um, and this process continues today. I mean, it's, I think it's important to remember that even though leftist parties and leftist movements in Pakistan today are not as strong as they were in the 50s, arguably, or 60s, and even though in a sense, many might think they're quite marginal to Pakistan's politics, the reality is uh, the degree of repression they continue to experience despite their quote unquote marginal status, I think tells us quite a lot about how the state and the powers that be view that particular kind of politics. I mean, uh, uh, you, you, the, when you look at the case of Babajan, for instance, in Gilgit Baltistan, I mean, when you look at other political workers belonging to progressive causes and how quickly and ruthlessly they're often kind of, in a sense, uh, uh, targeted and persecuted by the state. I think it's it's easy to see how any kind anything approaching a kind of uh, popular movement built along those principles would also inevitably encounter a tremendous amount of state repression. Precisely because I think that is truly what would what would challenge the status quo and the interests of those who benefit from it. So again, I think that's a chicken and egg problem there as yeah. well, in the sense that if you try to do uh, or get to the route that you're describing, which is a class-based politics of the poor, the status quo will very quickly clamp down and shut yep. it down and, and unite unite to deal with this challenge. But I'll play a bit of a devil's advocate, and that sort of leads us to the economic part of this discussion, which is that, you know, um, someone who's listening uh, to this conversation will respond and say, well, you know, you have these dynasts that continue to change loyalties and this is how the system perpetuates itself. So what Pakistan needs is a one party system like China, or they would even talk about a Bangladesh, for example, under Sheikh Hasina, which has essentially become a one party state and say, look, they've raised people out of poverty. Bangladesh is now about to become a bigger uh, per capita income economy than India. Um, its exports are vibrant, its economy is vibrant. Um, China is an even better example of that. And so um, why does a one state, uh, one party system in Pakistan or a presidential form, because I think that's used interchangeably at times by some people 
Um, why does that not work? Or what is your view about this view that a one-party system is the way forward for Pakistan because it can deliver the economic gains we've seen in a Bangladesh or a Vietnam or a China, um, and particularly given the unique differences that Pakistan has with these societies? Well, that's an interesting question. It reminds me of a comment uh, someone, a very senior academic, once uh, made at a conference I was presenting at a few years ago where he said, where I was basically talking about the authoritarian tendencies within mainstream parties in Pakistan, including the PMLN, for example. And uh, his comment was, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with one party rule if that's the route through which Pakistan becomes like Turkey, for instance, which has been able to roll back the influence of the military through the development of this kind of one party rule? Look, uh, I think it's it's not quite as simple as that, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I, one could there's there's a couple of in, interesting issues. So the first is obviously in a sense history matters and institutions matter, right? I mean people have always debated what's better for growth: is it democracy, is it dictatorship, so on and so forth. But in a way, the, the question really is what institutions are more conducive to growth and what institutions are less conducive to growth. And what we have in Pakistan is a situation where you have a relatively weak state apparatus, which is not, which arguably does not possess the capacity to carry out and implement any kind of policy program in a meaningful way, right? I mean, people often say, oh, look, Pakistan and South Korea were equivalent back in the 1960s, and now look at where South Korea is and look at where Pakistan is. Yes, but South Korea, again, had, very, had a very different kind of institutional capacity as compared to Pakistan, yes. Can I quickly interject because that's one of you know my pet peeves these days is people are lost in that uh, mythical past conversation yes. because now if you look at data, um, you are as a child born in Pakistan or versus a child born in Rwanda, you are better or more likely to have a better education, better healthcare and a better future if you are born in Rwanda Absolutely. than you are in Pakistan. So I think Pakistanis need to get over this fact about South Korea and it's copying uh, Pakistan's five-year model. But sorry, that was that's like yeah. no, become no, a thing I mean, for me. I'll tell you my kind of most favorite depressing statistic, which is infant mortality or under five mortality, where you find, for instance, back in the 80s, Ethiopia, Ethiopia's under five child mortality rate was, I think, around 120, 130 per thousand live births. And uh, Pakistan's was uh, something similar. I think it was around 120, 110. Pakistan's currently, I believe, is still languishing at around 80 or 90, while Ethiopia, for instance, is in the 60s now, I believe. I mean, across the world, you've seen this tremendous decline in under five child mortality. And Pakistan's basically been stagnant for two decades. I mean, um, what's the difference between South Korea and Pakistan? What's the difference between uh, China and Pakistan? Well, South Korea had, had a state elite that was not captured by rent-seeking interests in industry and agriculture. China had a powerful communist movement premised on popular mobilization that, again, was may have other issues, but wasn't held hostage, in a sense, by rent-seeking interests amongst capital and and landowning classes pakistan from the very beginning has a state has a state apparatus that's been captured by this rent-seeking elite if you look at the formulation of industrial policy back in the 50s if you look at policies towards agriculture for instance again and again the story is the same the same dynastic elite we were talking about before in collusion with the bureaucracy has 
presided over an economy that is geared towards meeting a relatively narrow set of interests as opposed to a broader, more inclusive one. And it, again, it becomes this kind of cycle, mutually reinforcing cycle of destruction, whereby the continued influence exercised by these actors also, in a sense, stymies further institutional development and reform. So for me, it's, it's not just a question of regime type, although, again, on that question, I would argue there, there's obvious reasons why you might want to, why you might prefer a democracy over a dictatorship. But even in that context, I mean, again, the difference between a place like Vietnam, a place like South Korea, and a place like Pakistan is that um, the capacity to implement policy and develop effective institutions is curtailed by the presence of powerful rent-seeking interests in the in society that have been able to, in a sense, uh, monopolize the levers of, of power within this country. That doesn't mean you don't have corruption in South Korea. Of course you do. It doesn't mean you don't have corruption in Bangladesh or rent-seeking elites there. But there, in a sense, the rent-seeking elites come later, right? Over there, the big capitalists emerge once those countries have started to industrialize, once they've kind of create, started to, once they've already in a sense coordinated with, with the state elites who existed in those societies. So just to put it very simply, dictatorship could work, but for it to work again, in, in a purely economic sense, you need the institutions that make dictatorship work. Pakistan doesn't have those. In the Chinese case, you need a movement a popular movement in a sense that provides the legitimacy that allows the state to take decisions that lead to growth over time. You don't have that in Pakistan either. In Bangladesh, let's not forget, Bangladesh is, it's, I, I don't think it's entirely coincidental. I'm not, I'm not an expert in Bangladesh by any means, but I don't think it's coincidental that a lot of the uh, kind of economic miracle that's been associated with Bangladesh happens to coincide with the time when the military's role in Bangladeshi politics has also, in a sense, declined considerably over the past decade or so. Uh, same arguably is true for Turkey. So for me in Pakistan, it's, it's the problem lies in the fact that our institutions remain hijacked by rent-seeking elites and the influence the military exerts on politics keeps those elites in place and also prevents and impedes the development of better institutions that might be able to deliver growth. I think and, and I think the China point is extremely valid and what I tell people when I have conversations with them and there is the China model is Sure, you can be a China, but the road to becoming a modern communist China is paved with the torturous path of the Cultural Revolution, where tens of millions of people died. And those tens of millions, many of whom uh, were poor people, but many, many of whom were elites who were swept away with the wave that swept that country. And so if you want to be a China, please go ahead, but then be ready for the death of countless uh, tons of people um, through famine, through upheaval, through all sorts of changes that happen. And even then, uh, you may not end up like a China because you are, unlike China, a multi-ethnic uh, society. And that I think people often forget is that even a Bangladesh is not multi-ethnic uh, the way a Pakistan is. And so to keep things together um, in a dictatorial sense is very different in a place like Pakistan and in a society like Pakistan's. Um, Based on sort of the conversation we've had, like, are you hopeful about where things are going in Pakistan and where they are today, given that the opposition is now talking about quote unquote democracy again with Maulana Fazlur Rahman at, at its head? Um, or is this again, 
another cycle where we may see the winds shift a bit come March before the Senate elections or a bit later on and the electables that came one way will go back the other and we will have round, I don't know, whatever of this cycle that has continued in Pakistani politics for decades. I'll, I'll start, um, before I get to whether I'm hopeful or not, I'll start with this point about the, the PDM and this latest round of kind of opposition politics in Pakistan. Look, my, my position on this is that it's it would be a mistake to be uncritical about this opposition movement. It would be a mistake to just take it at face value and assume that because it's talking the talk in a way, it's going to walk the walk, right? And there's plenty of, I think, reason for skepticism. Uh, it, I mean, it, it troubles me that uh, someone like Fazur Rahman would be at the head of this movement, right? Given his own record when it comes to inclusivity and participation. It, it should trouble people that the parties that are aligned with this movement are parties that have in the past been willing to play ball with the military establishment. And I, I accept and recognize that there is diversity within these parties as well, that there are factions, some more anti-military, some less anti-military within these parties as well. But again, it's something one needs to remain aware of. As you said, could the winds shift? Could you just see another round of deck chairs being shuffled on the Titanic again? Absolutely, that's the fear. For me, I think it's important to support the PDM and movements like the PDM in as much as they advance the cause for democratization in Pakistan. But that support has to be qualified. That support has to be tempered by recognition that just because you're pushing for democracy doesn't mean that you cannot be criticized or you cannot be held to a higher standard by those who support you. And I think that's the important thing. For me, I mean, I have, I, 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 I'm not a big fan of this PTI government. I've been quite clear about that for a very long time. But for me, removing this government or challenging this government is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. The idea is to try and develop a more substantive, inclusive and uh, responsive democracy. And that's not going to be accomplished by replacing one set of opportunistic elites with another set of opportunistic elites. So again, uh, as I often tell my students, you have to see democracy as a process, not an event. And this, and we have to see the PDM as a part of that process, not as the kind of answer to the question of um, authoritarianism and elite control in Pakistan. If the PDM were to come to power tomorrow, without any changes to anything else, is probably going to replicate the same systems of government governance that have existed in the past. So it's an ongoing thing. And so, yes, I think there have been some important changes. I think it's important that people are speaking more openly and explicitly about the role the military plays in Pakistan's politics. I think it is a positive sign to see uh, this, the discourse around civilian supremacy kind of gaining more traction. but. I think a lot more needs to be done to make this a movement that would be that would promote democratization in a more substantive way. So support it in as much as it pushes uh, uh, forward a, a, an agenda for democracy, but recognize that it at the end of the day is limited 
by the same structural constraints that have always limited Pakistan's politics. And that's what really needs to be pushed against. On the question of whether or not I'm optimistic, not really, uh, I'll be very honest. I mean, had you asked me this question back in 2008, I would have said, yes. I mean, I think things might be going in the right direction, but it, it is a bit troubling to see the extent to which in a sense, it's been a, a situation where, you know, you've taken one step forward and two steps back in many ways. Again, I, I think often, especially when you get caught up in this kind of petty partisan party politics, there's a tendency to miss the wood for the trees. And what I see in the wood is a military establishment that is perhaps more powerful than it's been before. I see troubling indicators in terms of governance. And I see the exacerbation of the same uh, issues that have historically hampered Pakistan's growth uh, as, as a polity, right? You, what's going on in Balochistan, for instance, what's going on in Gilgit Baltistan, what's happening uh, to regime opponents and dissidents and activists around the country is a continuation of the same kind of authoritarian, centralized, heavy-handed approach to diversity and debate that has always characterized Pakistan's politics. Um, we, we were discussing growth earlier on. I mean, um, many people don't realize that, you know, the, the reason why Pakistan's first constituent assembly was dissolved in 1954 was because it advocated in a sense um, and proposed a constitution that would have given East Pakistan uh, a, a say in politics that was proportional to its demographic strength. There was a reluctance on the part of Punjabi elites, basically, to accept a situation in which they weren't the dominant players within Pakistan's politics. And that's a pattern we've seen repeated. Uh, we see repeating itself again and again and again in Sindh, in Balochistan, in Gilgit Baltistan now, and even in parts of Punjab. And I think this refusal on the part of the establishment and the state elite in Pakistan to accommodate diversity, to recognize that you can, can see, you can have strength through diversity, this attempt to impose a kind of um, a unitary vision of what Pakistan is and what Pakistan should be on everyone at any cost is has has a big role to play in creating the kind of political instability that we see. And a lot of the exclusion that continues to characterize uh, a governance in Pakistan today. Speaking of things that, you know, continue to repeat, um, you mentioned the Constituent Assembly debates. Uh, I remember reading them back in 2015 in the summer here in Washington. Um, and I came across a debate about serving too much food being served at weddings and expensive <laughs> weddings occurring back in the day. And I'm like, well, we still are having those debates. So I guess both from the uh, the concession point that you raised, as well as what society should or should not do to the point about weddings um, continues to remain the same debate. Um, before I, I let you go and ask you about um, the book recommendations. Uh, the last question I had for you, and I know you said that you've been uh, a critic of the PPI government and sort of, you know, see this as a continuation of dynastic politics. Um, what are some things that you think, given the capture that has happened at the PPI, and I think there are no doubts about that, that Imran Khan or the PTI government, particularly in Islamabad, could do that maybe give you a bit more hope 
than you have at this point in time. What could the PTI do? Yeah, from a reforms perspective, like what can it do to maybe promote better, more inclusion or be less heavy handed? Um, look, I think the PTI in a sense is, is, is held hostage by its own limitations in a way. I think there are limits to what the PTI can realistically achieve. And those limits are imposed by, by two things. They're imposed by its reliance on the traditional elite to remain in power. And its limits are imposed by the military establishment and the extent to which it's willing to cede space to the PTI to make the kinds of changes that could ideally be made. I think there is, and I don't think this is something that's specific to the PTI. I think this would be true for most parties and most governments that, that have come to power in Pakistan. So I think there's limited room to maneuver. And I think, unfortunately, the PTI itself has chosen a path whereby it's doubling down, in a sense, on, the, on this particular style of politics. If you look at how, for instance, it deals with opposition, if you look at its silence and complicity when it comes to dealing with dissent, for instance, I think uh, it's not... It's, it's, it's difficult to put much stock in the capacity of the PTI to actually bring about, again, the substantive reforms I think Pakistan requires. Having said that, there are a couple of areas where I think there is some cause for optimism. I mean, uh, for instance, I do think um, the SAS cash transfer program, for instance, is something that is a positive step in the right direction, particularly the way in which it was expanded in response to COVID-19. I think certainly uh, the PTI has borrowed from others. The PTI has as I said, built on existing systems. For instance, ESAS is arguably just an extension of the Benazir Income Support Program. But I think small incremental measures, small incremental improvements like this can over time give rise to, again, the more universalistic kinds of entitlements, for instance, that I think a country like Pakistan would require. Um, the, similarly, on health insurance, I think, again, interesting moves have been made. I'm not sure I agree entirely with the kind of privatized model that the, the PTI has followed when it comes to health insurance. But certainly, those are areas in which, again, by building on what's come before and by introducing a few new things, the PTI has, uh, has done some good things. And for me, I think just building a broader structure of welfare uh, entitlement or welfare benefits rather and provision in Pakistan is an important step forward. But again, how sustainable this is, how, I mean, uh, to this day, even though I've asked a lot of people um, and tried to figure out the answer, I'm not sure where the money for SAS comes from. I'm not sure where the money for the health insurance comes from. I'm not sure what the legislation is that underpins all of this and makes it a kind of sustainable set of policy initiatives. But nonetheless, I think it's the right, it's one of, it's um, in the absence of, again, the kind of popular radical movements I'm talking about, this kind of incremental reform is better than nothing. And my, my hope is that, I mean, perhaps, again, the pressures of democratic competition might induce parties in the future to continue thinking along these lines. After all, I do think one of the kind of undocumented or rather unrecognized uh, things that happened between 2008 and 2018 was this kind of emergence of competition at least in between Kipi and Punjab in terms of portraying a certain level of service provision. One can dispute the efficacy and the kind of prioritization 
of what the PMLN government did in Punjab, just as one can do that about the PTI and KP. But you were certainly starting to see the emergence of this idea that we as parties should be defined by how we're governing our provinces and the measures we're taking there. And I think that kind of, as I said, that kind of thing is what you'd expect to happen with repeated cycles of democratic competition. And so if that at some level is inducing parties to think about welfare reform, think about universalistic kinds of provision, I think that's a good step in the right direction. I think SAS in particular is has been vital for COVID, but one would argue it needs to be expanded much, much more. But even from the cash transfer perspective, because of the role inflation has played, um, but you know, doc, Dr. Saab, this has been a wonderful discussion. Before I let you go, I always ask my guests for book recommendations. So what are two or three interesting books that you recommend to the listeners um, that they should pick up and read? And they can be on any topic, uh, including actually, Pakistan's political economy. I mean, I actually have three that do pertain to Pakistan's political economy because the three books that I have found to be quite interesting recently. The first is The Politics of Common Sense by Asim Sajjad Akhtar, which in a way, I think, provides you with a very good understanding from a kind of uh, Marxist perspective, at least, of the way in which the political economy is structured in Pakistan, but also how it's in a sense uh, legitimized and how it legitimates itself. We were talking earlier about patron client politics and how, for instance, voters make this calculation that suggests we'll stick with corrupt but politicians who deliver versus anyone else. And I think the politics of common sense is a book that really helps you understand uh, the kind of ideological and material forces behind that kind of decision-making, how you create a political environment in which that becomes the only decision that makes sense. Um, hence this title, The Politics of Common Sense. The other book is uh, by uh, Shandana Momanth, Crafty Oligarchs and Savvy Voters, which uh, was just published last year, and which is a great book, again, to un understand uh, patron-client politics in Pakistan. I mean, uh, it's certainly the most comprehensive work on this uh, in the Pakistani context. Uh, it's based on uh, over a decade of fieldwork, and uh, Shandana's done a fantastic job bringing that all together to give us new insights into how patron-client politics in Punjab has and has not evolved over, over the years. And finally, another book that I think is quite interesting, it goes a bit beyond Pakistan, but it's called Mafia Raj, The Rule of Bosses in South Asia. Uh, this was, uh, this was uh, published by Stanford University Press. It's got a bunch of great editors, uh, including uh, Nicholas Martin, Paul Rollier, and Lucia Micheluti. And what it basically talks is about is the nexus of criminality, patronage, and political influence in Pakistan. It's got a fantastic chapter on Lahore. It's got a lot of stuff on India. And again, it, it provides you with a real insight into how, an ethnographic insight into how politics actually works and how local strongmen and influentials actually straddle this kind of line between formal legal power and informal coercion in Pakistan, in South Asia to, in a sense, uh, assert their authority and uh, retain their control. So I think these three books, at least recently, have, have uh, I mean, I've, I found them quite interesting and it's certainly given me quite a bit to think about as well. Well, thank you for these recommendations and thank you for your time. This has been a fascinating and wonderful discussion. I think often on this podcast, we talk about the economy in purely economic terms, but I think it is important to understand 
the politics of a society and how that influences the economy. So thank you so much for your time. This has been great and uh, have a great sabbatical in Vancouver and uh, hope to have you on the show soon again, maybe once we see where the PDM goes and, and see <laughs> what you think about what's going on. Uh, absolutely. This was, this was great. I'm very glad I got this opportunity to talk about these issues. Thank you.